you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to continue on uh, looking at the book of Ephesians. And the next three uh, Sundays, we're going to camp on verses 3 through 14. Uh, And there's a good reason for that, as you'll see here in a minute. So uh, if you have your Bibles open, this is the Word of God. And it is useful for us uh, to make us thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let us give our attention to it. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the, when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession, to the praise of His glory. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we do thank You for this sacred text. And uh, Lord, as I think of this, and I realize I did not pray for Steve Cavallaro, we think of this man that might be a future minister here at Desert Springs. And Lord, as You add blessing to your word for us, Lord, that you would prepare Steve to be the future minister uh, here at Desert Springs, that you would work with all the details that are going on in his home and his life and here at Desert Springs, and that in the days to come, as you have planned salvation, so that you might also plan uh, his announcement to be pastor of this church. And we commit these things to you, Jesus, our Lord and our God. Amen. Well, in the history of mankind, there's been a, a number of famous first sentences. And one of the most famous opening sentences in Western literature is a statement found in Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice. You may remember it. It goes like this. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And if you know anything about the movie of Pride and Prejudice, that sentence sets up everything else that that whole uh, book or movie, if you've only seen the movie, is about. Um, First sentences are all, are, are summaries often given to us. They can often be thesis statements. We've also heard this one. 
As Americans, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with a certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know that as the introduction of the Declaration of Independence. And all these things, these sentences at different works or whatever they might be, convey some truths. Well, today, uh, we're going to look at a famous first sentence. That whole passage I just read to you in the Greek is one sentence. Now, that's a lot in one sentence, isn't it? Uh, There is a lot there. But it's important for us to look at this because this one sentence is sort of Paul's beginning. And so what does the Apostle Paul say from the prisons of Rome to the church in Ephesus, to the church that has, as we saw last week and the week before, has struggled there in that city where uh, they were being marginalized, where demonic possession was abounds, where witchcraft and sorcery were there, where the, th- uh, where the head merchants of the city saw them as a threat, where they struggled inwardly with false teachers teaching incorrect doctrines. What does Paul have to say to them? Well, if you see this first sentence, Paul erupts with praise. He gives thanks to God. And he, and he begins by saying, Blessed be our God and Father. Blessed be our God and Father. You see, when Paul begins this sentence, he wants the Ephesians to realize, to sort of get in their heads and hearts some big picture truths. Because oftentimes, and maybe you're like me, when I'm going through a stressful circumstance or something's not right in Doug's world, or as my wife would say, Dougie's world, uh, I get focused on that minute area. And I sort of forget the big picture. That can be so easy for us to do. And I think what Paul wanted to do here, right from the beginning of the book of Ephesians, knowing full well what was going on there, hearing the letters from Timothy and the challenges Timothy was facing there as a pastor in the church of Ephesus, he wanted to speak directly to them. And he begins by uh, opening us up to God's work of salvation and praising our God. So he does something uh, here in the verse, first 11 verses, verses 3 through 14. You know, uh, when I was getting ordained, and I'm sure Dick Riggleman has asked many young men who wanted to pursue ordination this question, because he's on the examination board, one of the famous questions is, where in the Bible do we find evidence of the Trinity? Now, brothers and sisters, that's a trick question in a way. Because the word Trinity is nowhere found in our Bible. Not even once. And so uh, many wise elders answer, ask young whippersnappers like myself this question to see if we know our Bible. And it's good for us to know because we can come into uh, contact with different cults that sometimes like to knock at our door and to point us to a false god. So where in the Bible do we find the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, let me point to you a couple places. And for some of you, you may be going through your mind. Well, I would point them here and there. Well, let's see. And let's see if I was a good student and if I pass Dick Riggleman's test, because he's checking me out over there right now. 
Right from the beginning, Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Let us, plural, make man in our image. There's plurality as the singular God is speaking. In the New Testament, we very much clearly see the Trinity at work and Jesus' baptism. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, and the Son is present. All three persons are there. A third clear representation is in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says to the disciples, Go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And a fourth place is found at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians. I often use this as a benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. But the last place, as far as abundantly clear where the Trinity is present, is in our text here today. Because verses 3 through 14 sort of show us, explains to the church the work of the Trinity in saving souls. It speaks first of the Father's role, and that is how He chooses from eternity, predestining some to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, how the Son redeems the chosen through His blood. In Him, His blood purchases forgiveness of sins for the elect. And then thirdly, how the Spirit in verses 13 and 14 seals us for the day of redemption as a guarantee of the deposit of which we are to inherit. You see... When, when Paul praises God here and he starts to illuminate of what God has done in maintaining this church in Ephesus, he wants them to see that that work is not solely due to their own intelligence, to their smarts, to their talents and abilities. No, this has a work. It's been done by the work of God. And so when Paul begins here, he wants the Ephesians to see that all honor... All glory belongs to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that leads him into praising God and announcing such rich blessings uh, to him. So today, who we're going to look at is obviously the first person of the Trinity, and that's the Father. And the Father has specific roles in our salvation. And so let us note first, what are those roles? And the first role I'd point out in your outline is that the Father chooses. The Father chooses. Paul tells us that even before the world was created, the Father chose those who would be His children. Now when we hear this, we need to understand something, that the coming of Christ was not plan B to creation. That was all part of God's plan. Even when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they had the ability, as Augustine says, to sin or to not sin. God in His infinite wisdom knew that mankind would sin, that He would break the rule. And to show His glory and His grace, that's where He announced to them, He announced to Eve that one day a child will come. And remember that in Genesis 3.15? He will smash the head of the snake. That's a death blow as the snake will bruise His heel. That is how God began to work. He chose us. He chose us out of our sinful ways. And how does he, what does He do next then? Or through this, should I say? Not only, it's more through than 
than next. There's not an order to it. He blesses us. That is what the Father does. Look what Paul says. Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in in the heavenly realms with the spiritual blessings in Christ, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. How does He bless us? Well, He blesses us through His choosing of us. But when He blesses us, notice what He does. Does He give us some or part or three-quarters worth? No, Scripture tells us He gives us every spiritual blessing. In other words, He doesn't withhold anything. It's like He takes all His booty and He gives it to us. It's like someone sweeping the cart and pushing all everything that's on the table towards that person. And that everything that He gives us is Christ. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. Some of my, one of my favorite passages in Scripture says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He, not also with Him, graciously give us all things? See, the principle is this, brothers and sisters. It's called the principle of the greater versus the lesser. When, 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 when God gave us Christ, when the Father gave us His Son to die for us, there is no greater gift God could give. None. In Christ summarizes every spiritual blessing because in Christ we would have nothing, would we? But through Christ we have everything. We who were former aliens and strangers, we who were rebels, we who knew, might have known the will of God until God illuminated our eyes to the work of the Spirit, we wouldn't have known anything. But in Christ, through Him, through the work He did on the cross by purchasing redemption for us, it is through Him that we have every spiritual blessing. And so the Father chooses us. Now let's get into some somewhat challenging things. Choosing involves the word of selecting. I think a number of months ago I talked to you about selecting and choosing, and sometimes people struggle with that, but it's really quite a common thing. In a lot of ways, we really don't look down on it. I, I gave you all the example of Eliza having her many different stuffed animals, but there was that one stuffed animal that stood out that she set her affection on. And we don't even uh, worry about that. And she is being good and gracious there in selecting that child for her love. The same is true with our Father. He chooses us out of His own will to be His children. And the object of His choice, obviously, is us those who would be born again. And when did this election happen? As I talked about earlier, it happened before the foundation of the world. Now, this is important for us to note. And I'm going to camp here for a second because, you know what? Uh, <clears throat> Paul is not the only one who drives home this point. John, in the book of Revelation, says this in chapter 13, verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, these things happen from the foundation of the world. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul said this, But we are are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And also in 2 Timothy, he talks about 
how we were given grace in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, before the world began. You see, this teaching wants to eradicate the idea that there's something in us that God sees and says, you know what, I'm going to bless this person. I'm going to give it to them because they're good. That's not what God does. You see, salvation is by God's free, gracious choice. And with that being said, let me clarify something. There is pretty much in Christendom two arguments on how a person is saved. One is uh, monergism, and the other one is called synergism. Mono meaning one, jism meaning a work of, thus the work of one. And synergism, it comes from the word, uh, or prefix sin means with or together. And synergism basically says the work that is done by two or more people. And thus these two words summarize the difference between the two schools of thought concerning Christian salvation. Monergism says the work of salvation is accomplished by God alone. Synergism says it is a cooperative, meaning that there are two parties at work. Well, the question is, what does the Bible tell us, right? Is it God's work alone, or do we bring something to the table? Is it 99% God and 1% man? Or is it 100% God and nothing from man? Well, let's look in God's Word. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to a couple of these passages, but I'm going to share some with you. John 15, verse 16. Jesus said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, and so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The book of 1 John, the Apostle John writes, We love because he first loved us. In other words, we're incapable to love until Christ loved us first. John 13 verse 18 says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And then he goes on to talk about after that how Judas will leave. Christ knows whom he's chosen. You see, some argue that our faith and works are necessary for salvation. They say because in many places we are called to believe or we're called to show faith and works. Surely, they argue, God sees our faith and then transforms our hearts. But again, this is not what our God teaches. Probably the most clearest teaching on that is Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus. You remember him? Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. And because he was fearful of being seen of coming to Christ, he came at night. And he began to talk to Jesus. And he just wanted to make a statement, if you remember uh, John chapter 3. But Jesus points the conversation specifically at Nicodemus and his need for salvation. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? In other words, he doesn't go back in his mommy's womb, does he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of what? The Spirit. 
Jesus says definitively to Nicodemus that in order for you to believe, Nicodemus, in order for you to become a part of this kingdom of God, because I know that's the real reason you came to see me tonight to talk about this, you got to have an inward heart change. Just as our uh, confession of faith talked about, this heart of stone must become a heart of flesh because a heart of stone will not pursue God. It will resist God. And that is the nature of our fall with Adam. You see, it is the work of God that He regenerates a heart. And that shows God has elected that soul to salvation. And the soul change enables the person to believe in Christ when they hear the gospel. Earlier in the book of John, he writes this, But to all who receive Him, to those who believe in His name, listen to what he says, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born by God. Scripture is very clear. The work is done by God. The confusion what people have is when people hear the arguments to say, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or these imperatives to to have good works to show uh, that your faith is true in the book of James. But it's like the old adage... It said, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But that faith is never alone. It always comes with good works. It comes as a result of what God has done in our heart. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? It's the, it's the truth of God transforming the soul. And with that soul transformed, we want to pursue God. We want to please Him because no longer is this heart in rebellion Now this heart is in ownership of being a child of God. And just like my children, or if you're a parent, your children, your kids want to please you. Daddy, did I do it right? That's the nature that now abides in those whose hearts have been changed by God. Well, there's another argument that comes up on this, is the argument of foreordination. Some argue that clearly election is done by something God foresees in us, and not His changing of the heart. But Scripture does not credit those who come to their senses. Instead, it credits salvation completely to God's free divine choice. And not only is it His choice to change our hearts, He predestines us, Scripture tells us, to good works, to becoming His children. As Paul says, He adopted us as His sons and daughters in Christ. He wills those to come to eternal life and those to display His eternal justice. Some giving Him life eternal and some showing that He is a just God and He will send people to damnation because of their rebellion and their sinfulness. Well, some might ask the question at this point, well, you know, Chaplin or Doug, does that make us robots then? Do we just stand and do robotic moves because God has changed our hearts? Well, if you are listening to the confession this morning, I think it articulates it quite well. We don't do it in a robotic mission. We do it out of a a desire or will in our heart. Because when God changes our heart, He changes our affections, our nature, our desires to do things that are pleasing to Him. Before I was a Christian, church was the last place I wanted to go. I didn't want to come here. It was boring or it was dull. Some of those, you might be feeling those things this morning. I don't know. 
But the point is, until my heart changed, did I realize the importance of being in here with other believers. Because I want to be with other believers. I want to worship God. And it's because He has changed that within me. Sometimes when people ask us that question, well, does that make us robots? I guess if I'm damned, I'm damned. And if I'm alive to God, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. But sort of that answer shows the cavalier notion or the flippant attitude that a person really has when they think about what God has done for them. See, brothers and sisters, saving us from our sins is no easy matter. It, co- it came with great cost. Uh, Peter writes that we should be holy as our God is holy because we were not redeemed with precious metals and silver and gold. No, we were redeemed with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We were redeemed with something we could never purchase nor earn, nor if we possessed all the earth or even the whole universe or the Milky Way galaxy, that would still not pay for the debt we owe God. It had to come with that individual, that being the God-man, Jesus Christ, His precious blood and His righteous life crucified on that cross for us and through His resurrection showing that He had paid the debt and His ascension that now He sits at the right hand of the throne of God assuring us, giving us that hope that one day we would spend eternal life with Him. You know, this idea of choosing has been all throughout Scripture. Right from the beginning, we see God's call on mankind of how He chooses some to be a witness and a light to others. He chose Abraham. What made Abraham stand out from all the other men that existed at that time? Nothing. God just set His affection on him. And He said, I'm going to choose you, and, I'm, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. It's just something God freely chose to do. Or the Father's choice on Moses. What made Moses outstanding? He wasn't outstanding, but God set His special blessing on him. Or even the choice of David. Uh, Think of David. I mean, and think about how he was viewed in his family. When Samuel shows up and says, I'm here to anoint the future king, his dad Jesse brings out the first boy. says, he looks great. And he looked all those things. Remember what God said? Don't look at the height of his stature or the beauty of appearance, for I've rejected them. For God does not, or God's, man does not see as God sees. For, man, for God looks at the heart. And he knew the heart that he had put in David. And all these other boys come down the line. And one by one, Samuel says, God hasn't chosen them. Do you have any more sons left? Jesse didn't even think to bring David to the show. He was out in the fields, and yet God had selected this child to be the future king of Israel and also the great father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how election happens. And please note, too, there's a freeness in God's election. You know, just because one is part of a covenant community does not mean God's blessing of election is certainly on them. The Pharisees are a a prime example They were the perfect believer. They knew their Bibles inside and out. They never had to fumble around to know where a passage was at. They showed up to church early every Sunday. They were the ones who sweep clean and also created laws for themselves that they could do everything right. But Jesus tells us, your heart is like an open grave. 
And back in those days, open graves were smelly, stenchy. There was no, nothing to uh, perfume those smells. Or I'm sorry, there was, but there was nothing to, to do what we do now to cover up all the stuff that comes with death and decay. Jesus says, your, your heart is completely distant. It's never been transformed. And that's why he pointed that out to the Pharisees time and time again. God's election is also free when you think about Judas. I mean, here he is. God selects this man to be a part of the most privileged 12 that ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, you think about the privileges those 12 men had. They saw the Son of God daily. They, were, they heard God's voice through man's flesh daily. He was allowed in to hear the intricacies of God's work. And yet in all of this, Judas's nature never changed, did it? He only did what his nature was. And as we say in the South, a snake is a snake is a snake. If a heart hasn't been changed, it's only going to act in that way. Jesus said, out of the heart flows the evils, the adulteries, the fornications, because unless this is changed, there will be nothing that comes with it. It all begins here. So why is this doctrine of election important? Well, I think a couple things for us as a church. First of all, it should teach us collectively, but also singularly, that God loves us. There is nothing we have done or earned or or deserved, or been born a part of. I don't care if you're a part of a family where you've had Christian, 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 Christian. God often works in those manners. Please hear me. But we should always consider salvation a great work of God's love. That's why Paul just explodes with praise when he, when he talks to the Ephesians here. It is amazing that he changes our hearts. And not only that, we should also realize what it produces in us. It produces a couple of natures, doesn't it? And first, I would say humility. Some would think pride. Yep, I'm chosen. I'm on the A team. You can play on the B league over here. No, that's not the way it works. It works this way in the sense that who are we to even be a part of this team? Lord, thank God that you for some reason, reached down into this guy who grew up in Winchester, Kentucky. I mean, where in the world is Winchester, Kentucky? I'm sure most of y'all don't even know where Winchester, Kentucky is. But he chose her. The story's same for you. He reached down and chose us. Secondly, it produces in us security. Security in the sense that when we are elected in Christ, we are His and He has loved us with an everlasting love. It's not a temporal love. It's everlasting love and it's electing love. And as we go through life, whatever might befall us, we can be like Joseph and say, you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. You see, those who are in Christ know that whatever befalls them in life, God is somehow going to use it for good. And that is a precious promise, dear folks. We need to cling to. And though some of you may have been disowned from your parents, divorced by a beloved, abandoned by children, when we know we are in the Lord's, we know that His love never ceases. He will neither leave us nor forsake us. It produces security. 
think a third thing it produces in us is confidence. Confidence that God has called us to certain works. In other words, we're going to do things that God calls us to do. It's a plan of His. He not only chose and elected you, but He has plans for you. And no matter where you might be, in work or at home or out on the road, God has specific plans for you. And that breeds confidence in the believer. That's why God says so often to us, don't be afraid. That's the most used command in the Bible. He doesn't want us to be afraid because we should know we're chosen and we're secure And that builds confidence to trust in God that He has us right where He wants us to be. It's no mistake. There's no error. And that's a good thing. But the last thing, and most importantly, being chosen, being elected by God, is that it produces in us worship. That is a good thing. When we think about God's electing love, it calls us to examine ourselves, doesn't it? to make sure we're in the faith. Because if we're not worshiping God, if we're not making God a priority, maybe we should ask the question, are we really a part of His kingdom? That's what the doctrine of electing love does. If we always think that God loves us and always there for us, we really don't think, I have to change. But when we think God elects, and if we wonder, am I really showing signs of evidence of being elected by God? That makes us call into question, am I really His? And if we are really His, you know what happens? We move in a life of worship. We are going to respond to Him. And we're going to do things for Him, even when it's difficult. That is the glory of our God. So as you think and reflect about God's, the Father's love and effect, or election, think how blessed you are. And as you think and meditate on that, may it produce life's change in you, as I hope it does in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time, and we thank you for your electing love. We thank you that it's from all eternity, and Lord, for each of us who are your children, you have good plans for us. If there are any here today who wonder whether they are in your household or not, we are reminded by Paul that we are to test ourselves. He calls us to do that. That is you calling us to do it, to make sure that we are your children. And So, Lord, I I do pray that with a, a sober, honest heart, we would examine ourselves. And, Lord, if we find ourselves wanting, let us come to you, Lord Jesus. Let us flee from our sins and turn to you. For those of us who find that we're growing in grace... May we develop in that humility and security and confidence. And Lord, we commit uh, this word to our souls. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.